Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. And I'm Jay. Welcome to the podcast. Today's topic, Avatar, The Way of Water. It is the sequel to Avatar and the second installment in the Avatar film series. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. Yeah, and wow, what a wait for this one. Uh, 13 years from the release of the original through to the release of this, uh, the highest grossing movie of all time, uh, this one, The Way of Water, fastest film to gross a billion dollars box office worldwide, doing so in just 12 days. Can I be honest? I was not waiting all those years for this sequel. And (laughs) as recent as a couple of days ago, and I shared with you, I think I'll just wait for Disney Plus. We all know that's where it's heading. We all know that's where that's heading. And you happen to mention you're going to go watch it for a second time. Yep. And you invited me along. And I'm like, well, how can I say no? And this is not my review. But what I will say, not watching it at the cinema and waiting for Disney Plus would have been a massive mistake. (laughs) I see the (laughs) error of my ways. Yeah, um, yeah. For me, uh, this there's been two years, two movies this year that I feel were, uh, despite how COVID has gone and how familiar we've become at just waiting for something to to go onto streaming or coming out in just that fashion because it didn't come out in cinemas at all. There are two movies on the slate this year that have now both come out that I was like. This these are cinema movies you've absolutely got to go. The first one was Top Gun Maverick. This is the absolutely. second. Mm. Um, and for and for similar reasons, uh, which is both were intended to be seen on with that with an audience with a big screen. Top Gun because of the intense filming on the actors in the cockpit seats, and you're seeing the strain, and you know they really went above and beyond to choreograph those and make them work. This is purely the technological achievements uh which you know it's based around the 3d um the original launched the 3d like uh trend we had in the late noughties uh early naughty teens um given it was so good we hadn't had 3d movies before avatar outside of the odd horror film and uh, kind of when you went to like a, a, a fair or like some event like that, they do from time to time those 3D movies with the old school, like uh, red and green glasses or the red and blue glasses. Uh, Avatar so huge. Everyone jumped on the bad wagon. Like we'll do a 3D post conversion, do this, do that. Um, so remembering that and remembering just how effective it was. I knew I had to see this at the cinema with 3D. I also recommend if you can find a somewhere showing it, high frame rate and full Dolby Atmos uh, surround sound as well, which is how we saw it. Yeah, and again, it was um, it was a great experience. I said to you before we started, I can't remember the last film I watched at the cinema in 3D. Yeah, I the, what I can remember. It, the last one I saw was it was either 
the third Hobbit movie, which was what the Battle of the Three Armies or Gemini Man, um, both of which right. had been filmed for high frame rate. Uh, but before that, I cannot remember. Um, possibly one of the first phase MCU movies, maybe. Wow, that I was didn't a post conversion. Really, I didn't see any of them in 3D. Actually, I've seen the Blu-rays of the early Marvel movies that they did. Yeah, they were 3D, weren't they? I didn't yeah, see. Yes, I can remember specifically. Didn't see them. Captain America: First Avenger being in 3D. Right. Um, and Tron Legacy was the only other. Like, ooh, I saw that 3D like that. I did see that filmed 3D. in 3D like Avatar. It had yep. phenomenal visuals. Um, although that, like the original Avatar, holds up quite well when you watch it on a regular television. But yeah, like the fact that we hadn't had any tentpole, like as I said, for, in terms of 3D, it was basically Avatar, Tron Legacy, and now this. There's no big ones that were like, if you don't, oh, Gravity. If you don't see these in uh in 3D, then don't even bother seeing the films kind of right. You know, it's a different one for us, Jay, and this was a last-minute addition to the schedule. Ordinarily, we wouldn't cover like a new release movie, especially one on this scale. I mean, fairly recently we did um, Superman, Batman, Super Sons, Battle for the yep. Super Sons or Of the Super Sons. It's a long title. But that was a direct-to-home <laughs> release film, and we covered that. But normally we do new TV, and then we do like older films like 80s, 90s, noughties. But this is a little bit different. So it's very it's very fresh because we'll talk about the budget, the box office. Well, we know the budget estimated around $250 million. Yep. But then he's simultaneously filming the sequels. So it's kind of like hard to know what really is strictly costing towards this film. But so far, it has made over a billion dollars. And you've said, you know, one of the fastest movies to do so, so it is still climbing at the box office. Critics have praised the film for its visual effects and technical achievements, though some called the plot thin and criticised its lengthy runtime. Can I be honest? Yeah, That sounds like the exact same thing they could have said about that first film. Yeah, and that's, um, at the moment, with the movie having only been out for two weeks, that's the big thing I keep hearing is, it's like 50-50 on the internet right now of, oh, it's great, it's phenomenal, loved it, and this, the other half doing the insane thing, it's garbage, it's thin, blah, 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 blah. And that's the part that makes me laugh the most because I'm like, but you, some a lot of you are the same people who raved and ranted about the first one. Like, And I said this going in uh, to, to you, um, I don't understand the hatred because as far as I can tell, their story side is at least on par. It is with what we had in the first one, and fairly, fairly similar. That first movie was a fish out of water tale with yep. Jake Sully. Now is a member of the Navi tribe. This another fish out of water tale. You've got the tribe from the trees now living with a water tribe. Yeah. So they're learning over again. So, I mean, thin, similar, but 
But you watch a film like this, especially at the cinema, just for that spectacle. And we watched it the right way and in 3D. And, and that's what it is. It is, it's not just another film. It's, it's an experience. Top Gun Maverick, as you've said, that was an experience. The Batman, when you hear the roaring of the engine of the Batmobile for the first time, you don't get that at home. I mean, you could get it close depending on your on your setup, but you're not going to get that same experience that you're going to get from the speakers in a in a cinema. So it is. Yeah. It's definitely it's an experience. I mean, James Cameron. I think this could be it for him. Like just making Avatar films for the rest of his life, directing them. I mean, I'm sure he's going to produce and maybe write some other things. But Avatar, and when he was questioned, like, you know, is this all you're going to be doing? It's like, well, the world and the world building is just so vast that tonally he could tell any story within that world. So maybe, maybe he will just continue to pump these out. I mean, he has said he's prepared to end the Avatar series after the third film if Avatar The Way of Water isn't profitable. The question is, how many people give a shit now? He stated, yeah, well, we we attended a late screening last night, a nine o'clock showing, 3D packed. It was yeah. it was a packed screening. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, uh, 9 p.m. start. That wasn't when the movie started. That's when the session started of a three hour film on a Thursday night. That's uh, yeah. that, a movie that's been out for two weeks. Like that is. The amount of people who are showing up to these things, uh, you know, beforehand, I try to book the cinema screening uh, in a number of different places and in different formats, uh, trying to keep with the 3D and the high frame rate, uh, the luxury lounges, uh, gold class here we have in Australia with uh, one cinema chain. They weren't showing it in 3D yet or and but still their showings were booked out. We have Lux with Hoyts here in Australia, which is the equivalent in the way they do it. Those were almost completely sold out, so you couldn't get seats together or at least at, um, in the same session. And you know, these we booked a, a day and a half in advance, so the people were still showing up. The fact that when I booked the tickets initially, there was including our seats, there were eight seats booked out in the cinema, and we rocked up to a sold out like session. Like people are showing up. Those movies are coming out. So it's uh, it's weird though, isn't it? Because it's like if you ask the man on the street, no interest in Avatar, we'll say they're not going to watch Avatar. Yet it's made over a billion dollars, and we yeah. turned up to a packed screening, and it wasn't like a cheap screening. Like it was all the bells and whistles, and it was packed. Yeah. So people yeah. aren't just paying for it. All the add-ons. They're paying extra for 3D and and everything else. And it's why a movie like this is going to make the money that it's going yeah. to make because it's not just selling people cheap tickets. Yeah, and he's doing a, the smart thing, which he said he learned from Peter Jackson, which is he's filmed this one, number three, and he's currently doing the principal photography of number four, and he's done doing them all back-to-back -back, uh, because – the cost of development for this one specifically and you know setting up sound stages and the the professionals it's much cheaper or spread out over the three as it would be to 
film one, see if it works, try and get everyone back now on the sequel, all that sort of stuff. Not to mention the physical toll for the actors. You know, they've all had to learn uh, free diving, scuba diving, and the rest of it. Uh, that's that's a muscle. That is a kind of fitness. But they've gotten into free dive shape where the average film of a, of a scene for this movie, by the way, three minutes, and that's like free diving. Like you're going to lose that kind of fitness if you go away and wait for them to finish the post-production and do the, the the press tour and all the rest of it. So it just makes sense to get it all done while everyone's kind of in the mode. Yeah, Jake and his family, you can get away with the actors aging, but it's the it's the human actors, isn't it? More so, I mean, more like Spider. Yeah. Um, you kind of don't want him to age up too quickly because that will be noticeable. So, it, yeah, it makes sense for Cameron to be doing it the way that he is. It's like when that first Shazam movie came out and they're like, oh, we're going to wait about three years for a sequel. I'm like, really? Those kids are really going to age, like the Shazam family. <laughs> they're really going to yeah. age quickly, so you really can't wait. Going back to the, the free diving, Kate Winslet, she held her breath for over seven minutes. Yep which is insane, setting a new record for any film shot underwater. She even broke Tom Cruise's underwater filming record from Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. He did six minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah, incredible. Uh, it's it's pretty, pretty massive. Um, and those listening, they performed over a quarter of a million free dives for the shoot of just this one movie 250,000 <laughs> dives to get the scenes um Stephen Lang said uh in terms of what they call static which is just how long you can just go under and hold your breath for he was good for between four to five minutes which at his age is like phenomenal he goes once they had to do the acting, though, and they had to do the moving round and the fight scenes between him and Sam Worthington, he goes, cut that in half. Like, it is so much harder to do that. He goes, I think I, I tapped out about two to two and a half minutes for those because it was so physical, you know, because not only are they swimming at each other underwater and all the rest of it, you have a you have to get down there first. You have to set up on your marks. Um, get all the camera rigging and that stuff ready. Then once you get the go, start the acting and it's all physical. And then you've got to stop with enough time for them to get air. Like, <laughs> yeah, he goes, yeah. So that, that fight sequence between him and Sam Worthington at the end of the movie was like quite physically exhausting. It really adds to it, doesn't it? I mean, this is a CG heavy film, but it's yeah. not a cartoon. It's not actors no. just doing voiceovers. So they're really putting themselves into the performance and you're talking there about how grueling it was at times. It just adds to the experience and just knowing, or maybe if you don't know, maybe you're still going to like marvel at the spectacle, but just knowing that that's the actor. He may be blue, but that yeah. is the actor doing these things. They put in all the work, the training, mentioned Top Gun Maverick. That's the actors up in those cockpits the opening yeah. of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, yes, 
Tom Cruise did have a harness when he was on the outside of the plane that they removed in CGI. But he's really hanging on the outside of that plane. And just yeah, that, yeah. that opening of the film, when the ground is pushing further and further away and you're, you're staying with the plane as it gets higher and higher, and you know in your mind that is actually Tom Cruise, it's why we go to the movies. And it's just a massive spectacle. And when we know the things that we know about filmmaking and all the work that goes in you can appreciate on one level but i guess if you don't know that and you're watching it as a film there's still so much to take in and to enjoy but that opening 20th century studios that first avatar film was so long ago it was 20th century fox but the opening it's the first thing you see in 3d and you're like oh look at that and then the opening in the movie you're getting spears poking out there's branches and leaves and I've got to be honest, maybe at the first five minutes, I was like, oh, oh, no. It looks good, and it does, and it looks good throughout. But I'm really watching the 3D, and I didn't want to watch the 3D. I mean, you watch it so you can enjoy it and feel immersed, but you don't yep. want to notice it. Just like even like your favorite film score, you don't want that to be the only thing that you notice. You want to watch it as a whole and take it all in. Yeah. I soon forgot about it. There's certain things on occasion. I mean, you don't forget you're watching 3D, but you stop watching for the 3D, if you know what I mean. And yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And and I was and I was there and I was I was along for the journey. It's a three-hour film. And again, it does have a thin plot to start here for reasons to go over there, stay there for a while, then they're under threat and they're fighting back. They retreat, they fight, they retreat, the big fight. That's the film, essentially. Yeah. But I wasn't thinking, oh, geez, what time is it? Oh, how long has it been? Oh, when's it going to end? That part really surprised me because as we were walking up to the cinema and you saw the sign, Avatar, Way of Water, runtime, 192 minutes, I was like, oh, no. (laughs) I'm going to feel every minute. And I didn't. I was so surprised. That was along for the ride. And you've seen it twice. Yeah, and there's no again, no checking my watch even on the second viewing. It's it all it's all put together so well. Um, and the strength of when I was I went we went with my nephew as well, uh, who was seeing it for the first time. And on the drive home, we're talking about it, and I'm talking about the people complaining about the simplicity of plot. I'm like, but it's not. It's very rare that it's a plot of a movie that actually sticks with people. It's the emotional uh, re- uh, relationships that make a movie last, um, which is one of the reasons why TV shows have come along so well, because you get to spend so much extra time with those characters and let their development, uh, their their character arc develop uh, over time, which is why you need so much on this. This is a family. You're getting introduced to them. You're having to see and feel the things they feel uh, for it to matter when, when something happens, whether it's uh, them starting out bad at something and getting better and like getting mastery or whatever you think over, or if someone's in danger, you're not going to feel for a character who's in danger when it happens 10 minutes in the movie, because you don't know who this person is yet. You don't care. Like, Oh, they're in danger. Start the movie. They surely aren't going to kill them off when else is happening. Like, yeah, so I, and that's something James Cameron said, he goes, 
you need to know who these people are. Otherwise, when stuff starts happening at, towards the back half of the movie, you're not going to care. And he's right. You, you need the emotional impact. Uh, you need the emotional connection before you get the emotional impact later on. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. It's funny, isn't it, when talking about the runtime, that the same people that would have issue with sitting down and watching a three-hour film is more than happy to sit down and binge a TV show. Yeah. And it's pretty much like three episodes of an hour-long drama. Yeah. But as a whole yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah, you just get it in one hit with no no breaks, no bathroom breaks. That's it. You know, I mentioned the, the 3D and at first thinking, oh, it's a bit of a distraction. I don't think I ever came to grips with a young Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> I don't know. But it just it just seemed like visually odd. Like I know they want to capture the actress. And Sigourney Weaver's great. Like we all love Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. But something about her particular character, like whether it's due to her being a clone, but I don't know, that visually did look different to the rest of her family. Yeah, and it's funny, Sigourney Weaver, when they initially showed her her character design, was like, nope, you need to change that. She's too neat, too, like, uh, attractive. She's like, right. know, like, if she's a 14-year-old, like very few 14 year old girls are like stunning. She's like, no, no, like, can you mess her up a bit? Change, like, make her hairstyle a bit more like kind of like, yeah, it's kind of all over because she doesn't care because it's not part of their culture. And uh, also making more gangly because she's in that awkward phase of like getting growth spurts and not settling into an adult body yet. Like, change it up. And that's something she requested. Right. Spending time hanging out with 14 year olds uh, <laughs> to get into the mindset. Uh, yep. the other thing she did all of the same training and uh she refused to have anyone come in for the doing the dives and that kind of stuff for her um as the other like uh children of sully the those actors because she's like if i can't do the physical side along with those kids then there's no reason to have me you might as well hire a 14 year old because Otherwise, you really will break immersion completely. Yeah, it is um, the big. The big thing that gives yeah. her away is her voice. She, she or she is trying to sound younger, but in the end of the day, this is a at the time of filming a sixty-nine-year-old woman uh, who has a lifetime of experience. Yeah, I mean, the voice didn't really throw me to be honest. Like I said, she was clearly doing like something not necessarily enough to sound the same age as the rest of the kids yeah i think what you've just said there about just being like neat the design like maybe that's that's what i was noticing because the the rest of the sully kids they they do look like the navi but she looked different enough so whether it's due to what you're saying just neat tidy but also her being a clone as well so having it look even more different because i mean they're different in themselves like the number of fingers that they have and um, oh what i did like with the new tribe like i didn't notice it at first but real strong distances like the the size of their forearms the thickness yeah. of their tails because that's that's what they need to survive in the water so it's like yeah 
Wow, it, it really is building something huge here, isn't it? Because you yeah. don't watch that first movie, Navi, that's it. That is the world. And you're like, no, 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 no. They're the tree people. <laughs> like that's yeah. that's who they are. And now we've got these other people. And then no doubt in in the many, many sequels that he has planned, we're gonna meet uh, different inhabitants of the planet, but yeah. Uh, yeah, 15. I did like them. Fifteen. Fifteen clans is what they came up ah, with. Ah, that's uh, confirmed. With different, like, because uh, he did all the world building. Yeah, each with a different culture that uh, illustrates specifically their biome and how they've adapted to it. So, right. Yeah. That also, is fifty-seven different species of aquatic animals that they created. Uh, <laughs> For this movie, with the use of uh, uh, Australian uh, and New Zealand uh, biologists, ah, oh, that's um, that's cool, isn't it? You've definitely got that local feel to it. I yeah. mean, the new tribe heavily influenced by Maori tribes. Like that's yeah. a strong thing that's in this film. Like they've got their version of the Aka. Like that's something that's incorporated. And that goes a long way as well, doesn't it? Of like, right, these this is an, a new alien tribe, but at the same time, does feel familiar, familiar to what we have here on Earth. So I did, I did like that. You know what you were just saying that working with uh, marine biologists, uh, the the effects. So that's yes, fifty seven new species of sea creatures. I mean, that is insane. To, yeah. <laughs> to to create that many new species. Of the 3,240 effect shots Weta Digital did, 2,225 involved water. I mean, water. I mean, it is the way of water. Water is yeah. the reason why we had to wait as long as we did. Cameron was yeah, adamant. They, <laughs> That's what the film was going to be. Yeah, it wasn't uh, 2013 when they first met with his uh, producing buddy, John Landau, to talk about, like, this is what I have. Here's my idea. This is this. The first thing he said was, like, James, we can't do motion capture underwater. The technology doesn't exist yet. And that's why we've waited so long. They had to develop the way to capture motion underwater. And free diving was actually their only way. If they had used scuba equipment, they actually produce a lot of bubbles. It would have blocked the sensors required to capture the actor's facial movements. Uh, they had two massive tanks for filming. One was a smaller tank that was their intimate tank for small like scenes between just two characters that weren't actually uh, action heavy. Their other one was huge, 120 feet long, 60 feet wide, 30 feet deep, had wave generators to do the action set pieces and stuff along the surface and held 250,000 gallons of water. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it is with, with James Cameron. Like, you think sci-fi, whether it's yeah. the Terminator films. Funny enough, 1991, we've got Terminator 2 Judgment Day. He hadn't done another sequel till now. This yeah. is second ever sequel. But Terminator 2, you got the liquid metal. Yep. 1989, The Abyss. 
So it's kind of like instead of being like it is sci-fi, but it's underwater instead of being out of space like aliens. 1997 Titanic. What is it with Cameron and water? <laughs> yeah, he definitely has. I mean, he Waterworld, which I think he was a producer on. Uh, the technology <laughs> was he they was, developed for that. Was that I, him? No, I don't think it was. I. Out of curiosity, I re-watched that again recently, first time in a long time. And whenever I watch it, I always come away thinking, huh, I thought there was going to be more to it. At the time, that was like the most expensive movie. I don't think is attached to that at all, but I can see why you think he was. There's water in the <laughs> title, and that's, that seems yeah. to be his go-to. Yeah, and the technology developed on that movie, uh, that's where actually where they – they made their money because it, I think, eventually broke even once it came out on home video. But uh, the technology for the sets on that movie is part of the technology they use now for um, spills in the ocean. Right. Well, that's, that, that film... technology developed. That's where the movie ah, actually made its money. Right. So water. Ah, that's in- that is interesting. Wow. And um, Waterworld, the film came out in '95, but it was from the director. Of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So I bet I thought, do you know what? It's the same director. It's the same star, Kevin Costner. Yeah. Let's throw all the money at it. We're going to have a hit on our hands with Waterworld. But it's interesting what you just said there, that after the fact, not necessarily from the movie, they made a profit. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, Um, yeah, I don't think Cameron was involved though. That's right. Uh, 18 months principal photography for this film took. Uh, although Eddie Falco, who uh, of the Sopranos fame, she shot her um, roles being a human uh, character in the film, playing uh, General Ardmore, four years ago. So long, in fact, <laughs> that she had thought the movie had come out, flopped, and that's the reason why no one had asked her about it until recently. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, she's done so much since then. It's like when Gwyneth Paltrow was being criticised because she forgot which Marvel film she was in. Yeah. It's like, hey, you was in a Spider-Man film or something like that. And she's like, no, I wasn't. But but she was. But then she's popping in and out and doing cameos, you know, cut some slack. But, um, yeah, and, Eddie Falco, that is a long time between shooting and having a film coming out. Yeah, yeah, huge. Um, yeah, it's amazing. The digital uh, expenditure of this movie, and I'm talking about literally like how much resources they required to render the special effects, required three Australian DWS centres at full capacity. Three. Wow. That's how many shots like it took to actually. That's how much server space they required because uh, uh, Meta, oh, uh, Weather Effects, didn't have that on hand. They had to hire places to crunch the extra data for them. Tell you what, Cameron's keeping a lot of people in work, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Huge, huge amount of people. Wow. We haven't actually mentioned the uh, the stars of the film. We should probably get to them. Uh, Sam I mean, Wellington that's... reprising his role. Yeah, I was going to say, that's usually where we start. <laughs> We've got done that Jake Sully. What I like is 
like you see him now in interviews and if you when you watch the film uh the same like weathering on his face the starting as like the crow's feet around his eyes and the starting to the creases are on his forehead all of that is captured like perfectly on his character and he's he steps right into this role same accent same everything it's smoothly like he is like you really feel the the I'm a parent part of his character in this, which is massively important. It is, but at the same time, <laughs> I mean, I mentioned I didn't really feel the one time. Yeah. But come on, Jake, <laughs> pick up a <laughs> weapon. I get it. You know, I'm a family man. You know, you need to look out for your family and keep them safe. But his family are never safe in this film. Like, never not once never. are they safe in this film no matter where he goes they're not actually safe i mean his youngest son those guys that he was trying to make friends with after he threw a few punches on the beach left him to yeah. die essentially so i'm like his family i mean just as much peril with the water tribe as yeah as they was before but yeah ah oh, i don't know like it was great when he finally He'd start fighting back. We got a you know a bit of action from him in the beginning, but then a huge middle part is him just trying to keep his family safe. And and I get it's not supposed to be a balls to the wall action film. Yeah. But you knew he was going to pick up a weapon again. So I felt like that was something that I was waiting quite a long time to see happen again. Yeah. Um Zoe Sadana returning as Neytiri. She's putting on a show. Like she absolutely her emotional like delivery, uh top notch. It's so powerful. It comes through, doesn't it? Like when she's like when she's hissing or when she's like really showing aggression and the way and the stance, like the way she moves her body, it's almost as if you are really seeing. Zoe Salander, like not in a bad way, but the actor is really coming through in the performance. Yeah, yeah. she's she's excellent. But again, though, pick up that bow. I am <laughs> waiting. And she is spending a lot of time saying, Hey Jake, we kind of need to fight. We can't keep running. He's going, No, yeah. no, we need to keep the family safe. So she puts the bow down. Oh, bloody hell. But yeah, Jake, yeah. she eventually goes into battle again. Yeah, and yeah, when she does like showing her action chops, she 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 dominates the screen when she's on. But phenomenal job. Um, we've brought up her up a lot. Sigourney Weaver as Kiri, the younger the the daughter they adopted because it's an unexplained birth from Sigourney Weaver's avatar from the first one. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think she's the only performance we've actually talked about at length. Oh, that's um, true. Yeah, we've, great. <laughs> we've talked about yeah. it. Yeah, uh, Stephen Lang returning as Quaritch, but in a clone uh, Navi body. He just, as you said, once he steps in and you see his body movement, like his voice, his delivery, like the aggression, he is great. I'm glad. I'm glad they found a way, a, a way that makes sense in story terms as well. For how to bring him back? Yeah, definitely. You, you just um, you just said there. You know, as I said, that's something I said off air. If people are wondering, 
if they miss me say that <laughs> during the episode. But yeah, the way that he moves, he's got a particular way of standing. He's got a certain cadence with how he speaks. And whether it's seeing him in his human form, which we do get a little bit of, it was a good way of them bringing the actor back. But for the most part, you do see his avatar. But yeah, like you know absolutely that that is who you're looking at because he's with the rest of his squad. But they've all yeah. got points of difference, whether it's a hairstyle, tattoos, clothing. So I, I liked all of that. But Stephen Lang, yeah, there is no mistaking him. And I didn't even know because I'd not been seeing trailers. I'd not been reading up on it. So I knew he was back until I watched the film. I didn't know how or why. So that was a nice reveal. Yeah, I had just assumed either they'd given him a new character like they had given Sigourney or it was a lot of uh, flashback to for other characters who were going to be important to the plot, whether it is he was the trainer of someone on Earth and then it's taken all this time for them to get to Pandora for revenge. Yeah, I just assumed there was going to be some typical way like of shoehorning him in, but this definitely worked the best. You know, when Spider, he says... I'm nothing like my father, or I'm nothing like him. Like straight away. Yeah, like, yes, straight, yeah. like straight away, we know whose kid he is. Like it was so on the nose. I don't think they were trying to keep it a secret and have it be like a slow reveal throughout the movie. I mean, there's only one guy who could possibly be Spider's dad. And it is. Yeah, and they actually don't tell you who his mother is, but it's uh a scorpion pilot named Paz Socorro who died in the uh, climactic battle at the end of the first one, which was in a tie-in comic. That's where they (laughs) covered that that whole thing, which is why they, and they do explain why was this small child left on Pandora when the rest of the humans fled? Babies can't go into cry sleep. He was an infant and they're not built for that. So he's had to live basically as another member of the Sully family. Uh, they call him a stray cat in the beginning, uh, but by the end of it, you can tell like he's as far as he's aware, he's concerned. He's a member of their family. I am glad that he didn't turn. Like yeah. he was translating for them, but you you could see like every ounce of horror on his face, and that what he was forced to see at the hands of his dad and the, and the rest of the of the team when they were like hunting down. Jake, his family, going through all the different tribes. That yeah, I'm glad that he didn't have a moment where he was now evil. <laughs> Maybe he was going to become good in a later film. I'm glad they didn't use that particular trope. Yeah, and the fact that he couldn't get away because he's a teenager and he's around fully grown military personnel, realistic. A lot stronger than he is as well. We should also probably mention that Spider is played by Jack Champion. Uh yeah, it's a physical role. He he does fine. Uh, it doesn't do anything to distract me with. Uh, but he also is relegated to translator for the most part. Yeah, he is, but he definitely has a strong point of difference to everybody else that he's often sharing screen time with. And to his credit, there's nowhere for him to hide. Yeah, I mean, he's a human surrounded by these CG characters. He's wearing very little, a loincloth yeah. at times, or a lot of the time he's wearing the face mask. But the actor, he's on full show 
a lot of the time. And and again, like the acting range that we get to see from this guy, I'm not familiar with him at all. I think this is no. my first introduction to him. And he really, he carries the role well. Yeah. And there's clearly some affection. I I imagine they'll build on later on with between him and Kiri played by Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll see where that goes. Uh, the other Sullies, we have the sons, Natayim, played by Jamie Flatters, who I'm going to be completely honest, the entire movie, I thought they were calling him Matteo, the uh, the Italian slash Spanish name. <laughs> so when I looked it up and I'm just like, where's the older son? Wait, Natayim? Who the? Oh, ah. like a bit <laughs> of a, a, a brain fart there on my part. But he's the good son. He's the one that does exactly as he's told those things the way he's supposed to kind of gets dragged along by his younger brother, who's more headstrong and yeah. he's just there to look out for him. But yeah, he's doing good work. He just doesn't have anywhere near the screen time. That's what I brother. was going to say. He is doing well, but not as interesting as his younger brother. He gets less screen time and he gets killed. So he yeah. doesn't really stick around for, for the sequels, but I've got to be honest, I did not think this film was going to go there. I didn't think we would see members of Jake's family killed. And, you know, this is a world at war. Like, they're being invaded by humans. And I said to yeah. you after the film, the takeaway message, humans are shit. Yeah. <laughs> they they yeah. really We really, really suck. Yes. But the older brother, yeah, ultimate sacrifice he he gets killed he gets a bullet to the chest yeah and it's uh it's probably the most emotional part of the whole film um that's where you really could see uh, zoe saldana um put on a show in direct relation to that and she gets emotional and she's got to kind of calm down to like get the rest of the job done because they still have other kids in danger uh and it's the the sought after revenge from his death that she's really like becoming frightening for um to watch this even for spider who's grown up around this woman um but yeah it's it's tragic I, like you i didn't expect any of the kids to die i thought um oh they'll uh they'll be fine but also they introduced they're, they're whaling in this movie uh the sea whales the tolkun uh that all they're taking is some uh some fluid from the gland a gland in their brain yellow stuff which apparently just stops aging like dead yeah it doesn't slow it down stops it yeah it's worth a ridiculous amount of money his son gets shot they're just called off that boat thing i'm like oh they're gonna get that magical yellow fluid nope doesn't get used like whether it comes to in a late in one of the sequels, possibly. But yeah, the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, yeah, no, I'd say that's going to come up. They've explained it now. I know, but I think it's, that's it. That that character has has died, and it and it it for me it reshapes the film because again we're seeing in that first film the Navi, the sky people at war. There's casualties, but a lot of the time nameless soldiers this was really personal and a big loss for the family and i think it's going to bring spider even further into the family 
But then there's going to be that betrayal when they find out that, no doubt in a later film, Spider actually saved the life of his dad, who Jake would have defeated in battle. Yeah. Spider saved him. So Spider's going to get more in with the family. Oh, it's like a soap opera. And then it's going to be splinters, divides. Kiri is no doubt going to side with Spider. They're going to run off. Who knows? I'm sure James Gunn knows what he's doing. (laughs) And he's already shot Uh, the scenes, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, Locke, the younger brother, played by Britton Dalton, he's got a lot more screen time and a lot more character growth. He's the one who keeps messing up time and time again. Uh, He feels like he's being, uh, his Jake is being overly harsh on him. But it's because you keep stepping out. Like I, I, I grew up with people. Like I've uh, my best friend. He has a younger brother that, uh, my mate got all the discipline. The same amount of discipline was applied to his younger brother, and he felt hard done by, and then acted out worse. And it's like, why didn't you just learn the lesson? But that's the kind of thing that uh, Loke has to deal with. He's a bit of an outsider because he's he's exacerbating the family and getting told off because he keeps kind of creating tension. And then he befriends one of the Tolkun and that's and also has a relationship with the the chieftain's daughter of the the sea people, played by Bailey Bass. Um uh Syraya, I think is how you pronounce her name. Um yeah, and that's quite a central part of the movie, especially that middle that middle part of the film. Well, that's a strong that's a strong story point that brings the two tribes together initially. Like straight away, the two teenagers lock eyes, and it kind of develops from that. The head of the tribe, he knows Jake Sully knows him to be this great warrior that fought off the Sky People, and it kind of it all builds from there. But with the relationship that he makes with the outcast, with the killer whale, and it's like ah. Yeah. Oh, He's an outcast because he kills. Like that is against their code. They don't kill. And you sat there watching the film thinking, well, he's going to need to. And I bet yeah. he's going to use those skills. And everyone's going to be like, do you know what? It's okay to do a bit of killing. We need to do a bit yeah. of killing sometimes. Yeah. And I thought the rest of his species would come. The the, the other ones, but they, they don't. It ends up just being him, but he does a lot of damage. To the sky people. Yeah, immense amount of damage. But also, you know, did he kill? No. But he instigated violence, which caused the deaths of others, For which for the, the Tolkun are not, uh, is, is the same as killing. It's like violence begets violence, and that's why he's outcast. Lork actually learns that lesson the hard way. If he hadn't kept going back, his brother wouldn't have gotten shot, and his brother's death won't be on his hands. So he really has learned the lesson of his uh, of his whale brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Tolkun. Yeah, I should say that instead of I keep saying killer whale. That's a <laughs> yeah, that's an Earth yeah, thing because they're not. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, they uh, are whales. They they are, they are whales. They are, they're one thousand percent whales. You're not supposed they... to not think they're whales. I mean, yes, they're alien whales, but the Tolkun. Oh, Wales. I said to you after the film, I was getting Star Trek for the Voyage Home vibes. <laughs> yeah. The plot yeah. of the film heavily relies on whales. Yeah. And they go, they show in detail how they hunt those things. They do. And 
one half of the Flight of the Concords guys, Jermaine Clement. I know he's gone on to do many, many other things, but... He'll never one, do that for us. <laughs> one, I didn't know it was in this. Two, New Zealand. Of course he is. Yeah. Of course he's in this. <laughs> yeah, playing Dr. Garvin, who is a marine biologist who wants to study the Tolkien, but unfortunately the only way he's getting his funding to do so is by being along for the way they hunt Tolkien. So as he makes the, the kind of quip, it's why I drink. Yeah, yeah. And and you do get that moment where he shows that he's displeased with what's going on, but it's what's funding his research. Yeah, yeah, he's stuck in that unfortunate spot. Uh, finally, for the Sully family, you get Took, played by Trinity Jolie Bliss. Um, she's the young kid. She's the adorable, like, young girl who, because she's at that age, doesn't want to be left out, but she's always where she shouldn't be. <laughs> like, always, and often yeah. in danger. Like, yeah. And then she even has the line, I'm tied up again, which yeah. got a little chuckle. And I realised when that got a little bit of chuckle, I thought, this film doesn't have that, does it? It's not yeah. like watching an MCU film where, you know, every now and then you get a funny quip. No. But that, I think, was the only laugh. The, the only yeah. bit of levity in this three-hour-plus-minute film is when she says, tied up again. Yeah, <laughs> which is also, like, exactly what you think. Like, I just got untied. How am I backing up? Yeah, and, you know, she is being the younger sibling. And, and again, like, as a parent, you're watching it and you've got nephews. You're like, no, you should yeah. not be in this situation. And she's even yeah. captured, when she's captured the second time or the final time, that's just after all the brothers has been shot dead. And you're like, oh, shit. So you're really feeling the stakes when you're watching this film. I mean, I didn't think they were going to go as far as having her be killed, and thankfully they didn't. But at yeah. the same time, you're like, nah, shit's real. Like, you need to no, do yeah. something. Every, yeah, everything's on the table. They've already killed one. They could kill anyone at this point. Yeah, and it, oh, it's that thing. It reminded me of um, General Zod in Man of Steel. I'm never going to stop. I'm just going to keep coming for you, coming for the Earth, and then obviously Superman stops Zod. And that's yeah. happening here. Like, yeah, he's he's saying, Jake, I am never going to stop coming for you and your family. And then finally, well, it stops here. And then we've got that big yeah, like, showdown. Let's get it done. <laughs> yeah, we've uh, we've not really mentioned with Kiri, the young Sigourney Weaver character. She's got this weird connection. Like, there's something going on. She's having seizures. And they're saying, well, she's not really seeing or experiencing what she's saying. Like, it's just a part of having a seizure, its activity, a frontal lobe. She's not really having or going to those places. Yeah. But then she's got a connection with creatures and she can, like, control them. So that's yeah. only really touched on here. And I thought that was going to be a big part of the finale. Like, before seeing the film and knowing you know, we're going to get these big Tolkien creatures. I thought she was the one that would be having the relationships. I was generally surprised that it was the other brother, which yeah. played really well for the film. But she's got 
her own thing going on. Like she can wave her hands and manipulate things in a certain way. So I'm like, right, she's going to put on a massive show. She essentially turns up with a flashlight at the end, just guiding yeah. the way with yeah, those yeah. creatures yeah, she, lit yeah, up on the water. The, uh the waypoint marker for the main character in a video game. <laughs> Which is good. Like she's serving yeah. a purpose there because characters are trapped underneath and they don't know how to find their way out. But I thought, but again, this is two of yeah. how many films we're going to get in this franchise. So there's yeah. so many more. I mean, again, it's probably filmed it. It's probably yeah. filmed already what that's going to be. But I yeah. just thought it would be more than her turning up midway point, video game, flashlight. This way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the leader of the sea people, the Metkayina, who we, uh, which is what they're called, is Tonawari, played by Cliff Curtis. Uh, Sunshine, Once for Warriors, Die Hard 4.0 or Live Free Die Hard, whichever version of the movie you got. He's he's one of those actors that pops up a lot. Uh, Fear but, the Walking Dead. Yeah, he's yeah. he's a working actor. So it's good yeah. seeing him. I was it's good seeing him doing something as big as this. Yeah. Wasn't until after the fact I knew it was him. When the whole film, I had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure about uh, you, but it wasn't until doing prep afterwards. I'm like, oh, that's that's who it is. Yeah, and you know, uh, New Zealand native uh, Maori like help helps inform. The, the culture of the the people that they're embodying um and he is the the chieftain of of the sea people uh and his wife the witch doctor i guess is the more typical name they have a name for him in the movie but i keep forgetting what it is is ronal played by kate winslet yeah who, everyone knows where <laughs> kate winslet knows james cameron <laughs> i mean i yeah of course but I, I mean, I knew that she was in this movie. Completely forgot she was in this movie. Watched it, doing prep for this. Oh, yeah, she yeah. was in this film. Yeah, I didn't see her or hear her at all. I think now I know it's her. No doubt you're going to hear her when you watch it. Did you know the first or second time that it was her? The second time I knew, um, which helped spot certain bits and pieces. Right. Again, like all of the the main adults in the movie, she's got very little to do. It's more uh, their their children that are taking up the, the most of the screen time. Um, so I'll be curious to see how they develop her further for the next movie. But um, she she definitely had a strong presence. You could see yeah. you know, you've got the chieftain, and people were looking at him for guidance and seeing if the Sully family can stay. But it really wasn't only up to him. Like he's turning yeah. to his wife and Ronald. She's, yeah, so she's definitely a long, she's definitely a strong presence in the tribe. And like you say, witch doctor or witch something or other, she's got ancient medicines. Yeah. And she had the relationship with the female Tolkun that had just had a baby. So she was driven by rage and revenge, and yeah, yeah. So you're right. Like a lot of the adults, they were taking a little bit of a back seat, and and that's why, right? At one point, I even thought maybe Sully wouldn't survive because 
of how much of the story was focused around his youngest son. I thought, are they finding yeah. a way to move beyond Jake Sully? I'm glad that they didn't, but that's just going back to what you just said there, that adults taking back seats for the most part with this film. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, it, ma- it makes sense. Like, these kids are about to enter into, like, what I'm assuming will be full-scale war for the next two films. Like, they've got to grow up and grow up fast. So you've got to see... Uh, you know, when you watch the next movie, I think you'll see the sacrifice w- or what was sacrificed for these kids because we've seen them live peacefully and I assume in the next ones we'll see child soldiers essentially. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's strong. It's, uh, it's a – all the adults are doing decent roles. It's just they're not they're not the focus of the movie. Um and keeping on that path, the people returning from the the previous film, Norm, played by Joel David Moore, uh, whose avatar I could have sworn was killed in the first one, yet he's got a fresh one for this. And, he's also uh, he's also the prime suspect for being Kiwi's dad. Because <laughs> yeah. actually, no, the, that's a bit of humor as well. You know, the yeah. kid looking at the footage, oh, there he is again. He's always in the background. It's, it's always them two sharing screen time in the diaries. Oh, that was a bit of levity yeah. as well. Yeah, uh, and his cohort, or the other Doctor, who doesn't have an Avatar body, Max Patel, played by Dilip Rao, uh, who I always just think of as the chemist from Inception. But yes. he was in the first one. He's in this one as well. They are barely in it. They're in the start because they're... They stayed on the uh, on Pandora when everyone else was sent off, and they come up to diagnose Kiri when she has a seizure, um, and uh, diagnose it as epilepsy, possibly incorrectly, maybe correctly. I guess we'll find out in the next one. But yeah, again, not really in the movie like most of these. Even Eddie Falco being the the person in charge of all the all the human campaign on the planet. She's in the introduction scene basically for Quaritch when he lands. And then once they leave to uh to start their like start hunting down Jake, she appears to pick him up, and then that's it for her in the movie. Like for me, the highlight of her is just watching her drink a cup of coffee whilst wearing the exosuit with hearts tricky. Yeah. Because you yeah, can't, like, you're, you you're to... moving ahead, like you're not actually holding the cup, but she's doing the actions, but she's yeah. using the exosuit, the arms to bring. Ah, I thought that was pretty tricky. But the scientist, Eddie Falco's character, knowing how he's shooting these films, it makes sense and it feels like an ongoing story, more a series, like a big screen series than films because they're all going to tie in they're going to be telling one big big story that you'd normally get in the tv season or multiple seasons but we're getting it in these films so if you're watching a tv show and a character comes in and out of it you buy it because that's what happens like you know like a season of a tv show and maybe an actor will pop up in just a handful of however many episodes yeah normally it wouldn't be financially viable for the studio, the actor, everybody involved to have a known actor come in and just have as little screen time as what we're getting in this film. But yeah. they were shooting this, shooting things for the third film, fourth film, 
whatever else they were doing at the time. So it's worth everybody's time. Studio, actors, Cameron, all of them. But it does feel a bit odd because we're not used to films being this way, where they're yeah. doing so many films at once. We've heard films being shot back to back. They did it with Infinity War and Endgame. But this is different. But yeah, it does feel a little bit odd because an actor will pop up. It's like, why did they even bother? Oh, because they yeah. might have a bigger role in number three or number four or whatever else they're they're shooting. But it does just move the story forward from from that first film. Yeah. Um and when it comes to all the rest of the characters, oh, you do get the 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 guy in charge of whaling, Scoresby, uh, an Australian. Why an Australian's whaling? Like, I guess it's just like we need a big character to to stand opposite Stephen Lang. Uh he's played by Brendan Cole. Uh he's really into his job. He's got yes. quotas to meet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And he he's an actor that I've seen in quite a few things, living in Australia, seen him in, in quite a few things over the years. But but you're right though, sort of like heading up this whaling exhibition is an Aussie and a Kiwi. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting choice, isn't it? But yeah, he he does it. He does it well, and he got the reaction from the audience. Like, oh, when he's when his arms fastened down, yeah, and he gets ripped off, and his he flies through the air in one direction, and his arm flies in another direction. I remember like, thinking, this is a good use of three D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, you had that coming. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The guy was an asshole. Absolutely yeah. had it coming. Yeah, but the funny thing is, I think it must be the hunter aspect. Like he admires the Tolkoon for just how impressive an animal it is, and he's the guy who gets to hunt them. But yeah, it's uh, he does a great job. Like, yeah, he, but he's we've... wearing the the flamboyant red like Hawaiian <laughs> shirt. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, he's like talking about like look at that explosive harpoon to the heart and still dragging yeah. like incredible. But what animal. you what you just said there is right. Like he is marveling and he is impressed at the Tolkien. Yeah. But the other side to that, him being the hunter and bringing a creature of that size and strength down, that's all ego, all him. Yeah. So it's so yeah, he's marveling at the how impressive they are, but he's also thinking, well look at me. I'm the guy yeah. that took him down. Yeah he, yeah, yeah, he played it really well and and again very satisfying seeing his arm fly yeah. through the air yeah i am also going to put this out there uh for those who are not australian aussies love to fish so this might just be the ultimate version of that guy <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah that's it like, what is it like, like uh, channel nine news on a thursday fish watch yeah <laughs> it's a segment yeah. of the news yeah australians love to fish yeah yeah yeah, it's a big part of our culture, uh, New Zealand culture as well. So we've taught the characters, the the effects, and all the world building. For me, it did not take long for me to feel like I was back in Pandora. So mentioned that opening in 3D, we get 20th Century Studios, and then straight away we see the home of the Navi tribe, and the avatar theme. And I was yeah. like, I'm back. <laughs> like that's yeah. I'm like, oh wow. This it is such 
a good theme and one that I'd forgotten about, to be honest. But as soon as you hear it, it's just so specific to Avatar. And we've mentioned James Horner so much on the podcast. (laughs) He was the composer on that first film. So a lot of the, the music that we're getting here would have been the work of Horner or reworked. But he initially he was attached because this film has been in production for the longest time. But unfortunately, um, he did pass away a few years ago. But he'd been working a long time with Simon Franklin. He's a name that I'm only recently learning, but he's somebody that has been working so long sometimes behind the scenes, like working with composers like James Horner. So going back to that first Avatar film, he worked with him on that. Um, Other film credits range from uh, David Fincher's Seven, The Amazing Spider-Man, which was James Horner, The Magnificent Seven, which I think was going to be Horner. That was maybe one of the last films he was working on. But he's someone who's kind of like just being there, but not quite a James Horner name, but since yeah. like he's credited as the composer for this film, and before this, he was attached to films like Skyfall, Spectre, but again, he was working with other composers. So in 2021, 20th Century Studios announced that Franklin would be officially taking over as the composer for the Avatar sequels. So no doubt, he's a name that we're going to start to hear more and more of. Yeah. And the music in this film, as you said, not only when it first kicks off, but uh, any, any of the sequences, whether it's the, the, the magic you're feeling as the characters, when they first get in the water in the water tribe or the fanfare, when the Tolkien rock up from the yearly migration or the tragedy, when, someone or something dies like it's it all like it all hits and all lands perfectly um and until i looked it up i didn't realize it wasn't james horner like because I, I i'd forgotten i'm like some those i'm like so used to those james horner like isms those beats and those uh motifs that didn't even consider that it was someone else having to compose it because he died back in 2015 <laughs> Yeah, but I guess for Cameron, he seemed like the the right successor, somebody that had worked with James Horner for so long. Yeah. And Cameron has proved time and time again that he likes to surround himself not just with the same people, but competent people. Like he doesn't yeah. suffer fools lightly. Like we, no. that you, you get that loud and clear whenever you hear him in interviews like does not suffer fools lightly so if you're good at what you do whether you're a Kate Winslet or you know James Horner we'd worked with previously yeah yeah so yeah so the new composer yeah so again I reckon Simon Franklin we're going to be hearing his name a lot yeah definitely and this is this is his his statement he's like look what I can do I'm going to do like another 15 of these. Yeah, another 15. I don't know if I could do another 15. But what what a yeah. compliment, though. Like you're, you're hearing this score and you're like, oh, I thought it was James Horner. 
Like he has done such a good job. And I guess the big distinction for him is like when he's going to be writing his own scores, putting his name on there. And okay, so we'll, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to um, hearing more more from him. Yeah, same. So let's do it. Let's let's rate this film now. If people missed our fairly recent review of Avatar, I came in a little bit higher than you. I came in at a four out of five, and you came in at a three point five out of five so we were yeah. fairly close and i think for me even though i watched it for the first time in 3d cinema and second time so i've still only seen that first film second time and the second viewing for the podcast was the 2d blu-ray but i think i was like it's hard to separate from my first experience and that recent rewatch and i think maybe that's why i was coming in a little bit higher with a four but for this movie, Avatar, The Way of Water, a film that we've said you've watched twice in cinemas already, and yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if you went back for a third time. But if you're going to rate this film out of five. Yeah, I'm going to come in uh, higher. I was probably overly critical on the first one um, since I'd seen it so many more times, especially the new but with this one, the the technology they've done, the world building's amazing, scores great. James Cameron knows exactly what he's doing, what shots he's composing. There is a little bit of a like a greatest hits almost with the the sinking of the the whaling ship at the end. There's some echoing of Titanic in there. But if you're gonna steal, steal from the best. And if you're already <laughs> the best, yep. steal from yourself. Uh, all of it's phenomenal. Uh, I was never not engaged. I'm going to come in at a four out of five. Um, my nephew, who uh, he's he ranted and raved about it the whole way home. He's in. He's like looking forward to seeing what happens next, and I'm right there with him. How about yourself? Yeah, I I thought you were going to come in higher. I, I honestly did. It's it's a four for me as well. I think I probably enjoyed the first movie more like just having that that in with a human perspective of jake and him having all these new experiences and that 3d spectacle we got in 2009 that we've not had till now visually everything's bigger and better yeah everything yes (laughs) but i think i would lean more towards that first film but this film like four out of five i mean it is a really good film. And I know people that are purposely not going to go and see this at the cinema because oh, yeah. I don't need I don't need to see that. I've got no interest in that. Oh, I've seen the first film. It was fine. Don't need to watch it again. I think 2009 was so long ago. And if not for the recent rewatch for this podcast, I also wouldn't have seen it since 2009. So it's worth going back to that one and for people to watch this on the big screen because I'm sure when it hits Disney Plus, Saturday night, curled up at home, on your 2D TV, I'm sure you'll be able to enjoy it enough, but you're not going to get that same experience. You're not going to get that immersive visual experience. And And again, the sound. Yeah, it's a yeah. It is. It's a four out of five. But I'm yeah. not going to go crazy. Like it's not the best movie ever. It's not the best sequel no. ever. But it no. it's 
Although, I again, I did enjoy that first movie more. I, this is close. Like, it, it is, it's a good film. You know, it's doing yeah. everything that it needs to do. But the main thing going for it and why it's going so well at the box office is all the extras. You're going for yeah. the bells and whistles. And you watch it in the right cinema, 3D, the, the right frame rate, which remind me, what is that again? Uh, 48 frames per second. There you go. That's how you should watch it. Jay did the research. Yeah. I just turned up. Watch yeah. <laughs> it like that and you will get the the most out of this film. But we've been yeah. hearing for years about another Avatar film. And not once over those years did I think, do you know what? I think I'd like to see another Avatar film. See, it's one of those things that when you're given it and you're sat there and you're watching, you're like, oh, actually, yeah, I do want to see this. This is a good film. So don't be put off by the runtime. Just go to it and enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, and I would say I'm trying to think about how I'd rate it if I'd just seen it 2D. But on a 3D experience, the, my score would be higher because that is the way it was intended to be watched. That is the way you should watch it. It is an experience. And you, until the next one comes out, I don't think we're going to get another experience like it because no one else is doing 3D. No one else. You know, they that that's things that they oh people aren't willing to spend the extra on 3d they will if you if you come at it with this kind of level of attention yeah this like, is absolutely this is 3d done right and if we're gonna mention another sam worthington film that i watched in 3d which was shocking clash of the <laughs> titans there was yeah. one creature in particular i think it was like a big scorpion or crab creature and it turned swear to god it looked like you saw the corner it was like yeah. a piece of paper folding. It's like, oh, that doesn't look right. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's not quite how James Cameron does it. But yeah, it's um it's a great film. One that was a very last minute addition to the schedule. So again, thanks for inviting me along to to the movie. I very much enjoyed it. And that's it for our episode all about Avatar, the way of water. If you'd like to contact us about this episode or suggest a topic for an upcoming episode, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. You've been listening to Luke and Jay, the guys from Sounds Like Comics. See you soon.